Hello and welcome to the 16th edition of Free Speak, a podcast of the Namibia Media Trust where we discuss all things media. I'm your host, Gwen Lister. Few would deny that Zimbabwe is in a downward spiral. In the midst of a deepening economic crisis, exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic and the shocking World Food Programme prognosis that two-thirds of the population will need food aid by year-end, President Emerson Manangagwa and his ZANU-PF party are intent on further suppressing free expression. In his own words, he's intent on what he says, flushing out opponents of the regime, calling them bad apples and rogue elements in league with foreign detractors. Journalists exposing corruption and citizens protesting Zimbabwe's slide into chaos are viciously silenced. Arbitrary arrests, torture and abductions are daily occurrences. Talking to me via phone from Harare are two powerhouse Zimbabwean women, Rihanna Masters, veteran journalist, trainer and researcher, and Sitsi Dangaremba, award-winning novelist, author of the Booker Prize long-listed This Mournable Body and Filmmaker. Welcome to both of you and thank you for joining me today. Hi Gwen, it's great to be with you and I'm glad we're going to get an opportunity to talk about our country. Wonderful. Thank you very much. I just wish that the circumstances were happier. But Rihanna, if I may, could I start with you? Freedom of expression is provided for in the Zimbabwe Constitution. Uh, it's probably true to say it's been on the decline for years. But given the current crackdown on media for exposing corruption and on dissenting voices, whether they manifest offline or online, being silenced once again, what is the impact of the latest crackdown on freedom of the press and free expression in Zimbabwe? So Gwen, I'm going to anchor my response to something I saw online because the impression out there is that it is just very specific, you know, groupings of people. But, you know, I think we're talking about a nation that is, you know, that is trying to speak. Um, so when I was looking on Twitter the other day, I saw this very simple but very sort of uh, powerful message. And the person said, walked into a supermarket and saw my salary written on an electric jug and I, and just left it at that. And in one of the responses, uh, you know, to that was, I served in the government for 12 years and I resigned a year ago, got a gratuity of RTGS equivalent to 85 USD. Now, these are conversations people have been having and engaging on, you know. It's about their aspirations, their frustrations, their dashed dreams. So over the weekend in an exchange with Sitsi, she mentioned creating space to speak. And I think that is what this, you know, that is what we're struggling with right now. There is no space to speak. Who, who or where do you express your frustration? Especially when you're being arrested for a comment you might have made on Twitter. You know, and the next thing you're being, uh, or a comment you've made on a WhatsApp group where you think you're safe and you say something and you're frustrated. And in our frustrations, we may often say outrageous things and we're allowed to do that. But what happens when you're arrested, you're a young girl and you're arrested, you're jailed overnight? What is that going to do to you? It's obviously going to have a ripple effect 
it's going to silence you, but even the 10 others that you then relate your story to. So it is, it's, it's about even ordinary Zimbabweans not being able to find a place to articulate what they want to say or what they feel. Um, besides media and, and activists and opposition, you know, members. And I think that must be, be put out there, you know. Exactly. And, and Sitsi, I mean, in your case, you've just recently been arrested for protesting. Uh, clearly, so have many others, and even worse than that, and many have gone into hiding. Sitsi, I wonder if you could just briefly describe for us um, what happened to you and, and what seems to be this hugely frightening situation on the ground there right now. Yes, thank you, Gwen. Well, what happened is that there was a call on Twitter and other social media about six weeks ago calling for a demonstration on the 31st of July to protest against corruption. The idea was that Zimbabweans are suffering, which we are, most of us, and one of the reasons for this suffering is corruption, which is a symptom of misgovernance. And so we needed to speak out against corruption. And many people were very excited about this. One could feel on Twitter that there was a huge response and people engaged about the messaging and this kind of thing. And then two days before the demonstration was to be held, we were told it was now illegal and that we would not be allowed to demonstrate. Although the Constitution of Zimbabwe does provide for a citizen's right to demonstrate and petition the government peacefully, but we were told it would be illegal. And then uh, after that, uh, the head of state said that the demonstration was actually an insurrection. So straight away, uh, citizens who wanted to express themselves were being criminalized. Uh, some people did quote the state of emergency that we are in, uh, the state of disaster, rather, that we are in as a result of COVID-19, which enables lockdowns and curfews as such, as a reason for not having the demonstration. And people did also talk about the public health implications of a demonstration. But I feel that all of the public health implications could be mitigated because people were calling for people to wear masks and to socially distance, uh, just as we do every day. So um, it, it was actually just criminalized. So then people had the choice. Are we going to demonstrate knowing that it has been criminalized in this way? Um, although the criminalization was not legislated, it was commanded. And so the, the, what else happened was that the military and other uh, security services were deployed in many of the high-density areas. We even saw uh, at least one photograph of a riot vehicle in, um, in, a, in a rural area. And so people were being intimidated. I was told of door-to-door -door searches, uh, people, young men especially, having to leave home because they were known to be uh, behind organizing people to demonstrate. And so in that scenario, most people lost heart and felt that they, they would not demonstrate. I then had to ask myself whether I was also going to... Uh, to, to decide not to go. Yeah, I hadn't thought that they would actually command it as illegal. 
Uh, but since that is a gray area, you know, this whole area of command without appropriate legislation, and also even with legislation that is contrary to the Constitution, I just felt that I would I would go out and demonstrate anyway. I'd been doing a series of one-woman uh, protests on various issues and one other two-woman protests. And on this occasion, I had a friend come with me. And uh, we walked down the road and decided to stand at an intersection so that we, we could be seen by traffic coming from many different directions. And that's when a strange person suddenly appeared and started filming us. And uh, then later on, somebody else spoke to my friend. And then later on, we saw the riot vehicle coming down the road. It was a main road, so I was still hopeful that it would continue to town, which I guess was not very charitable of me, but I did think so. <laughs> and then it, it, and then it did turn, and it did come to pick us up. And uh, the officer who spoke to us was very calm, not at all aggressive, and so we thought that was a good state to stay in, and so we decided not to question anything. And when we were told to, we were told that what we were doing was illegal and we should get into the vehicle. And so we complied. Well, I mean, Sitsi, I think, as you say, it's, it's, it's just for people to hear what is happening there to you and any others. And, and why I think that's quite critical is you mentioned something recently on Twitter. But before, before that, you said recently in an interview with BBC, as I recall, that it's impossible for the world to look away from what's happening in Zimbabwe. Linked to that, on your Twitter feed, you've made a couple of observations about being afraid. And naturally, in a situation like that, fear must be a factor. And you've got to overcome that in terms of, as you're saying, being a conscientious Zimbabwean, as you've referred to yourself as well, to actually get out on the streets or online and, and, and protest what is happening. But you also mentioned, which I was intrigued by, uh, that there's a fear of freedom. I'd, I'd love it if you could elaborate on that, uh, Titi. Yes, Gwen. I, I think that Zimbabwean society is uh, culturally invested in fear. From the colonial era, you know, uh, you are told to fear your superiors in the sense of respect, but also with the sense of what they can do to you if you don't. So we, we do have a culture which is really built on fear. And um, so I think that it is difficult for people to understand what kinds of fear we should overcome and which kinds of fear might be acceptable. So at the moment, we have an authority that simply uses, it works with that fear to intimidate us. People are used as examples uh, so that people can see what could happen if you also behaved in that way to discourage you and we give in to that and I think that it's it's a conversation we have to have at a societal level because then people will look back tradition and in fact this has been on Twitter also people have said you know it's our culture to respect our elders and to do whatever they tell us and not to go against what they say so we are condoning that reaction that says oh if somebody tells me what to do I have to do it and I think we need a conversation around that uh, what might have been useful in the pre-colonial era and maybe even in the colonial era and maybe even into the era of the liberation struggle where you had to be afraid of what might happen to you from the side 
of, of the Liberation Army if you did the wrong thing and from the side of the Rhodesian Army if you did the wrong thing. You know, Sophia is endemic, and we have to start talking about how we move forward from fear in order to, to create a sustainable Zimbabwean culture that is functional in the 21st century, because that kind of fear, as we see, is not functional. If it were functional, we would see a thriving Zimbabwe, right. but we see an improving Zimbabwe. And so, obviously, the ways we have of engaging with our challenges, uh, they, these are not productive ways. Right, and I think, as you say, it's a discussion that needs to be had, and, and a fascinating one as well, to compare essentially the pre-colonial or the colonial era, the Smith regime, um, with what's happening now. Um, leading into that, Rihanna, looking at the role of media, what do you think is, is the best way, and again, it's, 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 it's a question of also trying to overcome fear, what's the best way for media to maintain what we could call incisive journalism and, and for citizens to sustain this protest against corruption and the further erosion of their rights. If I look back at the role of social media in the Zimbabwe context and, for example, the uh, hashtag this flag viral online protest, that seemed to fizzle out. And this may link in with what uh, Tsitsi has just said. Will the same happen, do you think, with the hashtag Zimbabwean Lives Matter? Is it likely also that the authorities could take further steps, shut down the internet or curb social media if those voices of protest become too loud or because the images that so quickly go viral embarrass the government? And in your monitoring, Rihanna, because I know you've done quite a lot of that of such issues on the continent, is there a positive example of how sustained civic action and journalism speaking truth to power has changed things for the better for citizens? It's a big question, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, Gwen, that is a huge question. Many questions there, actually. Let's start with online movements. I think this flag fizzled out because it did not take the online uh, conversation and, you know, build it offline. That was one of the biggest uh, issues. We have to le learn to harness that online momentum and engage on how to take it offline and build it. That, that's the biggest issue for me. Sitsi has raised a very good point. The fear. There is that fear. And that fear has been there for many years. There are many people in this country who want to participate um, in some kind of, of you know, um, peaceful and sustained way of, of, you know, protesting. But, you know, going on the streets, there's always going to be the inevitable, you are going to be arrested and you are going to be jailed. And that is something that people have not really come to terms with, okay? I think that a lot of these movements have to be about integrity. Many times it's attached to some kind of partisan position. And I... You know, the public doesn't always want to participate in something that is politically uh, aligned. So this is something that I think we really, really have to learn. When we're, when we're lobbying, we have to think about lobbying to regional bodies. We're always looking to the outside community, but that at some point, is that, that kind of support does fizzle out because it's not fashionable anymore or it, you know, it isn't you know, uh, sustainable in the long run. So for us, in this part of the world, I think we have to learn 
um, how to, you know, we have to look at how we engage regional bodies and regional organizations. And this is something that I looked at. Hopeful actually build support, Hopeful Chinona build support in the region. In Nigeria, you know, when um, the activist and, and um, Omoyele Sohore was, was arrested, it was, you know, momentous. There were people in Nigeria lobbying for him. They took it outside of Nigeria and, you know, uh, built momentum on the continent. And then his wife took it up in America as well. And I think that kind of building of, of, of and harnessing of energy may show that, you know, there was the spotlight was always on the issue. He's, he's back um, and he was arrested recently and all, released almost immediately. Uh, the issue now is how to now, you know, ensure that his charges are dropped. And it's something that they are building a campaign around. So those are the things I would say. Now, when it comes to journalism, it is about us being able to really write compellingly, writing well, writing in a way that is, you know, accurate. Those are, And you talk about that all the time. Those are the things that will keep us you know, true to the issues that we are trying to fight about and, and, you know, put out into the public domain. So in other words, this protest also, I think, I get from what you're saying and what Sitsi said before, is a combination of things, isn't it? I must say, in our own very small way here in Namibia, our action coalition of key civil society groups released what I think was a very strong statement condemning the crackdown in Zimbabwe and calling on Namibia's government to be more vocal when it comes to the abuse of the rights of fellow Africans. And as you both know, the AU somewhat belatedly issued a statement calling on the Zimbabwe government to observe the rule of law and respect human rights. But SADC remained silent, and of course the former liberation movements seem to be very re reluctant, as usual, to pass judgment. Um, Titi, what do you think, if, if we really can, or if the Zimbabwean Lives Matter campaign can really take off um, internationally, continentally, um, and if people and governments were far, far more outspoken about what is happening um, in Zimbabwe, and of course the media rose to the challenge and did its part, um, do you think that will help change what Zimbabwe has become? I mean, is that going to be the catalyst uh, to really get things uh, uh, changed on the ground? Gwen, I do think that there is a role for regional and international communities to play because we do have a global community um, today. Um, and so I would like to, to see more engagement from regional, continental and international bodies. I feel there has not been enough on the other hand, these bodies can only engage when there is sufficient evidence that engagement is merited. And so now, if you have a clampdown so that the streets are empty and we cannot see 500,000 people, maybe even if they're in different cities, coming out to say, this isn't working for us, how can that message then be conveyed uh, to, to these bodies so that they understand that it's something they should engage with? So this comes back to the earlier question of um, are we able to nurture sufficient freedom of expression in the country for this expression to be heard and to be seen uh, on its own merit? 
And this is where I think we have we have a vacuum because those classes who are on social media, which is where expression is mainly happening now, are a very small portion of the population. How do we then include other people who are not um, uh, in the virtual domain? And basically we're saying, how do we take it into a wider audience and make it a national phenomenon? 70% of Zimbabweans are rural and probably don't have much access to data. How do we start even informing people who are steeped in more traditional ways of living, where you are subject to your chief, who is subject to the minister, who is subject to the head of state. How do we start talking to them about freedom of expression? How do we talk to them about ideas uh, of uh, human dignity, that your dignity as a human being has to be preserved? These are conversations that we have not really had across the board the structures are making sure that we cannot have these conversations. And, and so it's, it's um, a double-edged sword here. It's a catch-22. Unless we can get that groundswell of, of expression, those international and regional bodies are not going to have the evidence that they need to intervene. You know, we've, talk, we've spoken about 2016, this flag. We have authorities which will ban citizens from waving their own flag. Yes, I mean, it's incredible. So this is what we are up against. This is the entity that we are dealing with. And I think that we have to find ways of capacitating ourselves to deal with this entity in a peaceful and constitutional manner. I believe that uh, we, we can do this. But at the moment, more than, more than one person is a gathering, which yes. can be illegal. Absolutely. Yeah, we have an entity which says, okay, we, we repealed POSA, which was said to be a repressive act, and we have replaced it with MOPA, but it's under MOPA now that more than one person is a gathering uh, which might be uh, convened to incite public violence. Yeah. So we are in, in a, a very difficult position, and I, I think that the spaces for us to convene, to engage with these issues is shrinking. But it is up to us to find the ways, and certainly using any platform that we have available, including ones like this, yes. and the kind of support that we got, for example, from a Namibian civil society, it all adds up. Yeah, we have to persevere. I agree. And, uh, you know, I think for, for, for those of us outside who've sort of observed what's been happening in Zimbabwe, I mean, someone as old as myself, certainly from the Smith regime to date, um, it, it's so disappointing somehow. And even when uh, Menangagwa came to power, um, he was seen as a bit of a reformist. Uh, people did think, oh, okay, now there is going to be, you know, a more reasonable situation happening in Zimbabwe, and the repression of the late Mugabe era is going to be over. And again, he referred to himself as a servant leader, and um, it, but it's clear by now that he and his government are absolutely defiant in their repression of citizen rights. Again, one of your former ministers, I think, had the quoted as such, which I thought was incredibly arrogant, where he said, hashtags come and go, but ZANU-PF endures. And again, that kind of 
is almost taunting uh, uh, online voices, you know, that you're not going to sustain this. It's going to be a sort of flash in the pan and then it's going to move on. So it's really, really disappointing for those of us who've watched the Zimbabwe situation. But Rihanna, perhaps turning back to the role of journalism, um, while it is even more necessary at this time in Zimbabwe, it's clearly becoming more dangerous. And you've referred already to the uh, Hopewell Chinono and, of course, the activist Jacob Ngarivuma, who are both being held, I heard, in leg irons, for example, and maximum security. I was totally horrified to hear that. But I also really appreciated the words of Tabani Moyo of Mises Zimbabwe, who said recently, journalism is in the line of fire. There is a daily threat when you're a journalist in Zimbabwe. And especially with its essential role in informing the population around the COVID-19 pandemic. What do you think the future of, of journalism in Zimbabwe is looking like right now? And most importantly, does this have resonance? Does that journalism have resonance at groundswell uh, public support? Well, I'll start by saying that, yes, um, let me unpack some of what Tabani is saying. We have the pandemic. So it's about journalists going out there and trying to report um, in, you know, within the context of having to say, stay safe. Okay. Right. Then there's sustainability, the issue of sustainability. What the lockdown has done, uh, you know, in the world and, and especially on this continent, it has meant that uh, media houses are grappling. They're grappling to stay, um, you know, uh, open. They're grappling to put out information, um, grappling to get their journalists. Right now, I think freelance journalists are in the most precarious situation than ever before, you know, and many, many uh, media outlets are not even engaging uh, freelance journalists. They're basically working with very small staff, trying to cover as many issues as possible, okay? Then there's the law. We've had this massive, uh, you know, media law reform program and, you know, Parliament engaged with the public, went out there. But a lot of the, the engagement was not then included in the content, you know, in the legislation that was then formulated. OK, then it's about the enforcement of the law. And uh, in, the, and in, in the case of, of uh, people who have been arrested, you know, hopefully he's being denied bail, you know, and, and despite the lawyers being active and fighting for their bail. And we're talking about this in the context, again, of COVID, okay? And we know what prison conditions do, you know, what, what happens in prison conditions. Then also, in terms of content, you know, um, the, the media is being attacked on content. There's this great flaw in the system when journalists are exposing corruption, which is supposed to, you know, in, in that exposure, they're trying to ensure that there is development in the country. They're being targeted, but those who actually commit the crimes are not being punished at all. You know, it may seem on the surface that they're being arrested, but then the investigations and the actual case doesn't go anywhere. However, you have a journalist who's you know, an editor of a publication who's exposed corruption and they go look, the authorities go looking for him, don't find him, and instead they take his nephew. I mean, for me, that's quite a low. Now, not only do they take his nephew, nobody knows where to look, find him. 
And it is only when the lawyer makes an urgent application for Tawanda Muchahiwa, uh, you know, for the, for the authorities to produce him, that he's then dumped outside his house, but basically after he's been tortured. I, you know, instead of a nation celebrating the, the, you know, the tenacity of the media in exposing corruption, they are punishing them, you know, punishing the media. You know, there's a lot to be said about that. Does it have public support? Well, if it didn't, these instances have made it have public support. Right. Basically, you know, if, if we were dying, we're slowly being revived because of what is happening to us. And, you know, MISA, they, their work must be cut out because there's arrests on a daily basis. You know, um, even when people, you know, they, they had made a very strong case with the media commission, which at that time had not been appointed yet. You know, we now do have a media commission in place, but they had not been appointed. So accreditation was, the process of accreditation was was not possible this year. So a lot of journalists had to rely on the previous accreditation. And why the authorities then agreed that yes, you know, and the ministry agreed that yes, we would be able to use our old press cards. What happened is then many journalists have been arrested for not having recent press accreditation. Absolutely I think th there's, there's something fundamentally wrong when we are being targeted in this very specific way. I agree. And perhaps because we have to bring this con conversation to an end, unfortunately, I'd love to continue for a lot longer. But I just want to maybe at the end touch on the role of women in Zimbabwe. And Sitsi, you first. Um, your new book, um, which is, as everybody knows now, is, is a Booker Prize long-listed uh, one and making waves, it seems, all over, um, is really about post-colonial violence. When I read a review of it, a quote from one of your characters touched me and it goes as follows. What it is, she sighed, to have to choose between self and security. Does this mirror your own predicament as a conscientious Zimbabwean woman living in a time of turmoil, Titi? When um, I, I had thought that I would make my contribution through my work, through my narrative, my films and my writing, but the situation in Zimbabwe is such that I, I really was not able to do that. I, I wasn't able to build up a life for myself uh, working in those areas. And one of the reasons is that the narrative space is closed down. Journalists are um, a profession which is recognized, and so it is difficult to stop journalists practicing. Uh, we need the media, so this is recognized. But with the, the creative narrative kind of narrative that I am involved in, uh, you can easily make it impossible for, for people to function um, whatever grants are available for films simply do not go to, to certain people and go to other people. And so I found myself in a situation where I was unable to practice. And when I talk about uh, resources and cap capacitation, I don't mean just uh, capacitation uh, from the local authorities, but even from international authorities, because, you know, they have their bilateral agreements and, and so forth. So if you are a person non grata with, with the state or not somebody that the state wishes to support, you will often find, and this was what I found, 
that uh, other institutions which fund your area will also not be willing to fund you. And it was really only the EU ACP program that funded me to any meaningful extent. And so I literally was not able to function. And so it was in not being able to practice my work that I had time to, to engage with all these issues which I would have been turning into narrative. I'm not able to do it. So I'm just experiencing them in my body. And this is what pushed me out. And I am sure that there are many other people who are experiencing their conditions on their body. For me, it was not being able to work. Uh, for somebody else, it might be not being able to put food on the table for the child. So that person is pushed out. For another, it might be having somebody die uh, because the nurses are striking because they don't have PPE. That person might be pushed out. And so it is beginning to impinge on us women also. As the whole fabric crumbles, Those that distance between us and this entity which is causing this collapse is shortened, and we find that we are up against it. And so we find that we cannot move back anymore because our backs are already against the wall. So we are going to see more women coming to the front. And in the last few months, this has definitely been the case. And I think that when the women really develop that consciousness of right. nation and their role in it, I think we will see a change. Because usually when the be women begin to move, it means we have, we have gone down to that fundamental, the foundation of the nation. And so the foundation is beginning to change. And I think we are moving in that direction now. Absolutely. And maybe through that, uh, the issue of fear will be tackled head on as well, I would think, Titsi. Rihanna, just very last few words from you. Uh, as a journalist of many decades, also in, in Zimbabwe, um, any final thoughts on the role of women? Well, I'm going to start by saying that there's such a disconnect between the Zimbabwean political leadership yes. and Zimbabwean citizens. And, you know, the, the impact of that is felt particularly by women. And Sisi said it well, you know, there are women who are re really just waking up every day and thinking, okay, how do I feed my children? Yes. How do I keep this roof over their heads? What do I, you know, what do I clothe them with? And, and how do I do this? How do I do this? And so you'll also see that they are the ones who are coming out, um, even for, you know, this, uh, the 31st, July 31st protest, there, were, there was a stronger presence of women. Yes. Even if yes. the numbers were small, there was stronger presence of women. On um, online platforms, more and more women are speaking up. Um, you know, there's the activist, uh, I think she's 21 or 22 years old, Namatai Kwekweza, who um, was arrested and then re-arrested, <laughs> you know. Yeah. She's been speaking out. She's a young woman, and she talks about, she really talks about the issues that are on the ground, you know, the realities that people are dealing with, the poverty. And again, as Sitsi has mentioned, it links back to corruption. Absolutely. Um, when we talk about free expression, this is very interesting. Um, its impact on, on, on women. There are double standards here in Zimbabwe. You know, men are attacked online, but not to the extent that women commentators are. And they are attacked in a very vicious, very personal way. Always. Um, yes. You know, it's, yes, always. It's, it's objectified. And 
particularly, I, I mean, you know, this incident really stuck in my head. When the three um, MDC women were arrested, and one of them is an MP, Jana Mamombe, she, you know, um, they talked, they mentioned that they had been uh, sexually assaulted and tortured. Wow. And the conversation on, on, on online conversation, you know, when they were, there was a smear campaign against them and, you know, it was being said that, you know, they had made this up, um, the story wasn't true, the abduction was not true. The discussion then went on to the size of her breath, you oh, know, yes. on WhatsApp shocking. group. Shocking. And for me, I thought, here is a woman saying she's been tortured and this is a conversation we're having, you know. Um, and, and, and I think it, there's a great deal of misogyny, um, there's a great deal of sexism around these conversations. And even in the newsrooms, I mean, one of our, you know, a woman was uh, appointed the editor of a weekly publication. And the attacks on her were so personal. And, you know, literally you saw 20 years of hard work going down the drain because it was intimated that she was given that position because of the relationships that she has. And the fact that she had done this incredible body of work came to nothing in just you know, with just a few sentences online. And and I think that's what's happening to women. Yeah, it's shocking. And in a way, you think it would be a huge deterrent to, to women. They have just so much to to deal with, as both you and Sitsi have, have indicated in the course of this discussion. That, But, but you know, I'm very confident uh, that Rihanna and Sitsi, with women like you, um, and women with decades of experience that you will be able to lead the way um, and show other Zimbabwean women that, yes, sometimes there's a huge amount of sacrifice um, to be made, unfortunately, um, in order to, to fight for what is good and what is right. But I've got absolute confidence that um, women will eventually be in the front, forefront and hopefully change will come to Zimbabwe sooner rather than later. And I wish you both much strength and solidarity with your work as you go forward. Thank you both so much for joining me in this discussion. Thank you, Thank Gwen. You, Gwen.